Well, let's turn to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to finish Colossians chapter 3 this morning. And we're going to chip into Colossians chapter 4. Colossians 3, we're going to read verse 18 to Colossians 4 verse 1. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord, and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he that does wrong shall receive for the wrong which he has done, and there is no respect of persons. Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let's pray once more. Father, we open your word that you have inspired. And God, I pray that this morning you'd take these words and that you would speak to each one of us and that you'd give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you're saying. And I thank you, God, for your grace and your gospel and how it changes us. And I pray that you would change us this morning. You'd do a work in our hearts by these words. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. I've called this message Social Relationships 101 for Christians or The Basics for Blockheads <laughs> because, <laughs> well, aren't, isn't that, isn't that kind of true? I mean, we are dull. We can read these things again and again and again and again and not be changed by them, right? But it's so clear and it's so simple. You know, these relationships here that the Apostle Paul focuses on, which is wives and husbands, children, fathers, this is family, right? And then also masters and servants, which is your employment. That's pretty much most of the relationships that we have in life, isn't it? Your family and your employment. It doesn't mention friends here, but if we can master this, we can master friends too. You see, this, these are the core relationships of our lives. And if we fail in these relationships, then we've pretty much failed altogether. Let me just say that again. These are the core relationships in our lives. And if we fail in these relationships, then we've pretty much failed altogether. It's pretty easy to be friendly to a stranger, isn't it? or a friend that you see every now and again, right? But how many of you know it's a lot different in your relationships with your family members and your employer or your employees or your workmates? It's an altogether different ballpark, isn't it? Because with strangers, they don't know who you are, you don't know who they am or, or who they are. And with, the, with friends, you know, you might not see them very often. But with family, it's no holds barred, Right? You can't walk away. Well, some people try. Some people do. And that's the ultimate failure, by the way. To walk away is the ultimate failure. But with family, you're yourself, aren't you? You're not pretending to be anybody else. You're with them. They know who you are. And as yourself, you really reveal who you are in your relationships with these, in these core relationships. In, in this passage, Paul is talking about the character of Christians. He's just talked about putting on certain character. 
as Christians, right? So from verse 12 to verse 17, the Apostle Paul, as we had read before, is telling us as Christians to put on kindness and mercy and patience and love and forgiveness. He lists these things. And now we're get, he's going to apply these things to actual relationships, specific relationships that we have. So it's not enough just to talk about how nice it would be to put on kindness. Now we're going to get specific. Now we're going to focus in. Put on kindness in the realm of your family relationships. Put on mercy. Put on long-suffering. How many of you know that you need to put these things on when it comes to the family? More so than when it comes to strangers, right? So he's taking these characteristics and he's applying them to the relationships that are the core of our lives. And you'll notice in the passages that we, in the verses that we read in this passage, how many times he mentions in the Lord or unto the Lord, because everything is in view of Christ. All of our human relationships are now being viewed from the standpoint of our relationship with Christ. If you aren't a Christian and you don't have a relationship with Christ, then this is going to be really confusing for you and it's not going to work. But if you know Christ, and if you know God through Christ, then it's possible for you to say, oh, oh, as is fit in the Lord, okay, as unto the Lord, or in the Lord. I understand what that means. So we're going to look at how re- these relationships are to be lived from the standpoint of our relationship with Christ. And it's very familiar, it's a very uh, similar passage to that which we read in Ephesians. And I'll refer to Ephesians a few times. So shall we begin? Are you ready? Might be a little convicting. <clears throat> Number one, wives. Wives. Now, I don't believe there is any reason why Paul starts with wives. I'm not going to read into anything there, okay? Because he had to start with somebody, right? So I don't think there's a reason that he starts with wives first. But this is what he says about the wives. It's amazing how simple his commands are, which God has given him to give to us. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands. Wives, submit yourselves unto your husbands, unto your own husbands. And lest we think this should be a cultural commandment that is to be explained as some first century Jewish cultural thing, the Apostle Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 11.3 that the head of every man, the head of every woman is man, the head of every man is Christ, and the head of Christ is God. This is a divine order that God has set up. And if we say that the husband and wife relationship is just to be understood culturally, then why not also Christ and God in our relationship with God? If we think that way, we're not seeing the way, we're not thinking the way God would have us think. This is a divine order. The man is the head of the the woman. The wife is to be submitted to the man. Now, what does submission mean? We've talked about this in Ephesians. To submit yourself is to subordinate yourself. That's what it means. To arrange yourself underneath. In your mind, I have arranged myself underneath my husband with a view to obey. Obedience, if obedience isn't there, then submission isn't there. Your, your submission, your subordination is really just a joke. You can say you're submitted. Oh yeah, I've arranged myself underneath. But then if there's no obedience, then you're not really submitted. It's just words. So to submit yourself is to subordinate or arrange yourself underneath your husband with the view to obey. And it's the same with Christ and the church. The church is submitted to Christ in all things, it says in Ephesians, is to be. That means we, as, a, as Christians, submit ourselves under Christ. We arrange ourselves under him so that when he speaks, we obey. In Ephesians 5.24, Paul tells us the scope of our obedience. He says, obey in everything. As the church is to obey Christ in everything, is to be submitted to Christ in everything, so also is the wife to be submitted to the husband in everything. That's a pretty tall order. Now, I think it was yesterday, I was at a, I think it it was yesterday when I heard this at this men's conference, one of the speakers 
told a story of a time he was talking to a, a wife, someone's wife, he was talking to them, and he was talking about this issue of submission. And the wife said, well, I'm submitted to my husband most of the time, she said. Most of the time I'm submitted to my wife, or, in most, or to my husband. And most of the things he says, I'm submitted to my husband. But do you know what that actually means? If, you're, if, you're, if you think you're submitted to your husband most of the time, then you're not understanding that you're not actually submitted to your husband at all. If it's not all, then it's not at all. Okay? If it's not all, then it's not at all. Because what this is revealing is this. Oh yeah, I, I, I obey my husband whenever I agree with him. Yeah. <laughs> or whenever, it's, whenever I'm apathetic about it. Yeah, whenever, I'm ap- whenever I agree or I'm apathetic or it doesn't matter or whatever, or whatever I'm not going to bother with an argument. Yeah, I'll... But in the place where submission matters, that's where I disagree and I don't submit. You see? Unless submission is total, then there's no submission at all because you're revealing that you're not submitted at all. And your obedience is not even obedience because you're just doing what you think is right anyway. You're just doing what you want to do anyway. But submission and obedience really is tested in those places when you don't want to obey. And when your husband tells you to do something and you choose to obey him even though that's not what you want to do. That is what the Apostle Paul is telling wives to do with their husbands. To submit in all. And it says here to submit yourselves, which means no one's to force you to do that. The husband isn't to force the wife to submit. Many wives don't submit, right? Many wives don't submit. But, what would you like to say, Ron? So you've got to give them still the choice. Their free will, right? They they are to submit themselves, the scripture says, and the husband... That's right. If they choose not to, that's their decision, and they're disobeying God. They're disobeying God. So the, the wife has to choose whether they're going to obey God and submit to their husband. If, if we understand that God is telling us to submit, if, is telling wives to submit to their husbands in all things, then that means, wives, you want to choose a husband very carefully. <laughs> yes. It means you want to choose a husband carefully. Because this commandment has nothing to do with whether the husband is a good husband or a bad husband. And this commandment applies to you whether you have a good husband or a bad husband. And wives, for the most part, at least in our country, usually everyone, if, if, you're, if you're married, you freely chose to be married to that man. And because you freely chose to be married to that man, that was your decision. You have what you've chosen. And so, whether he's good or bad, you are to submit in all things. Yet, last thing I'll mention here is this. That it says, Wives, submit unto your husbands as it is fit in the Lord. And the reason why you do this is that of obedience to God. This is right according to what God, according to who God is and what He thinks. As it is fit in the Lord. Meaning, first of all, this is God's design and His plan and His command. This is His wisdom. It's fitting to do it in the Lord. But also, it's fitting to do it because it's suitable with the gospel. Because all of us sin and come short of God's design, right? And Christ died for our sins. So, if you are a wife who has failed at this, the good news is that Christ has died for your sins. Jesus died for your failing to do this. 
but to walk suitably and fitly to the Lord would be to see that it is a sin and that He loves you and died for you and therefore desire in love toward God to not do that anymore. So who? Wives, submit to your own husbands. What are you supposed to do? Submit in all things to your husbands. And when do you do it? Not just when it's agreeable to you, but at all times. And why? Because it's fit and right in the Lord. Number two, husbands. Verse 19, husbands. Another very, very simple command. Jacob, love Bonnie. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. So simple and yet so profound is God's wisdom in his word. Now in Ephesians, we have a little bit more light on love. And we talked about this last time we were in Ephesians. It says in Ephesians, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, right? And what we talked about in Ephesians that last time when we looked at that was the manner of love that Christ loved the church. So it's not just, to know, it's not just enough to know that Christ loved the church. Oh yeah, he loved the church, so I should love my wife. But it's the challenge for us men and the challenge for husbands and the challenge for future husbands is to learn what manner of love Christ loved the church with. Learn how Christ loved the church and what was his love like. And then imitate it and replicate it. It was amazing. It was wonderful. It was free. It was full of patience. It was full of kindness. We talked about that. And it was while we were yet sinners, which means husbands, our love for our wives is to be like Christ's love for the church. That is, it has no reference to whether the wife is submitting or not. No reference to whether the wife is sinful or not. And love is full of all those wonderful things in 1 Corinthians 13. But I want to point out one more thing about Christ's love, which I didn't talk about in depth last time. And I won't talk about it in depth now, but I just want to point it out as the main point I'd like to make this morning. That as Christ's love was surprising, so let the husband's love be surprising to his wife. I want to underline the word surprising. No one expected God to love us like he did in Christ Jesus. In fact, what we expected was the opposite. And it was a surprising thing that God in Christ came and died for our sins and manifested his love to us. It was a surprising thing. And because of the cross, now we know that God loves us. He has demonstrated his love for us at the cross in the most surprising way. We didn't expect it. We didn't do anything to prompt it so that we could have expected it. We didn't prime the pump and sit back and wait. It just happened surprisingly. And this is important because women need to be loved and men need to be loved too. Women need to be loved and women need to know that they're loved. Would women agree with that? Do you you need to know you're loved? And I know men need that too, but I think it's, it's even more pronounced for women. And that's why the Bible says this. But the problem is, one, one thing that women do, and this is a big source of conflict in many relationships, is that they test their husbands, they test their boyfriends, they test to see whether they're loved. Right? They test. Don't they? No, no. I'm not saying this is good. I'm saying, I'm saying women's test this. They say little things, they throw little tests out there to see what the man will do to see if the man really loves them or not. Perfection. And so often men fail the test. I think men fail the test because we have no idea there's a test going on. 
<laughs> we don't take the hints. <laughs> I do. The sad thing is, women, I'm going to suggest to you that these tests are not right. And men, I'm going to say that they wouldn't do these tests if we surprised our wives more. <laughs> Let that sink in. <laughs> they test because they want to know, because they're in doubt. And men, if we surprised them more, there wouldn't be these tests. We need to make it so they don't need these tests by doing things for our wives to let them know that we do love them without them priming the pump, without them expecting it coming. And this is really important. I believe that the element of surprise is very important for husbands to do when it comes to loving their wives. So here's a challenge to Ben. Surprise your wives and show them that you love them because you do. And women, these tests aren't right because the truth is, even when the man fails the test, he loves you. And now you're all upset that he doesn't love you when he does. But he's just slow. So what you're asking is to do more than expected, right? That's right. That's right. The tests aren't right because the woman will say, you don't love me, and he does. He just failed the test because he wasn't aware of it, that it was going on. And then it causes conflict and turmoil. So I've given my challenge to the men. And then it says here, be not bitter against them, men. Be not bitter against them. And this word bitter is amazing. It's an amazing word. How many of you know what bitter means? The Greek word and the English are the exact same. It just means bitter. What is bitter? What's a bitter taste? How many, how many of you have ever tasted bitter before? You ever tasted bitter before? I'll give two examples. You ever had a, a pill or something in your mouth and you, you bit it and you had a really bitter taste? You know, like an aspirin or something? And you, you had it in your mouth for too long. And all of a sudden it got bitter. And you're, ugh, ugh. It's even worse than sour. Sour is like lemon. Bitter is like, ah, you know? Or here's another kind of disgusting one. How many of you have ever had earwax on your finger and you got it in your mouth? <laughs> no? Earwax is very bitter. It makes you go, ugh. Here's the definition of bitter. A harsh, disagreeable, acrid taste. A disagreeable taste. Something you don't want to be, have in your mouth. Sour, sometimes you want that. Kids have sour candy all the time. And apples. And, and sour apples. But bitter, you don't want it. It's disagreeable and acrid. Here's another definition from a dictionary of bitter. And here's the essence of what Paul's saying. Hard to bear with. That's bitter. It's disagreeable in your mouth because it's hard to bear with. And this is what Paul's saying. He's saying, don't be bitter toward, pros in the Greek. Don't be bitter towards your wife. Don't be hard to bear with. That's amazing, isn't it? That it says that there. Don't be hard to bear with. Don't be bitter. That's correct. Now, wives, that's no excuse for not submitting. Because did you know in 1 Peter, we'll go to the Apostle Peter, he said to servants, but it applies to wives, servants, you work hard for your masters, even to the ones that are hard to bear with. The good and the not good. You submit to your master and you serve him in all things, even the master that, isn't, that is not good. And then in 1 Peter chapter 3, 
Peter then points to the wives and he's talking about, he's talking to wives who don't even have Christian husbands and he says, submit to them in everything. So, men, the Bible tells us not to be bitter toward our wife, but wives, it's no excuse. If you have a bitter husband, the Lord, he's disobeying God. He's disobeying the Lord. He's not living to you the way he should. But, that doesn't mean that you suddenly have now the excuse to disobey God too. If you have a husband who's hard to bear with, the Bible commands you to submit to him in all things. But it also commands the husband not to be bitter towards his wife. And men, if you are being bitter towards your wife, you're not loving your wife. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter. Those two things go together. When you read 1 Corinthians 13, you don't get the impression of someone who's hard to bear with, do you? Imagine if you were filled with love of patience and kindness and no keeping no records of wrongs, being not rude, seeking the good of others. So it's a chal- this is, a, this is a, a challenge to both husbands and wives. And this is, you can see, God's wisdom in the marriage relationship. Understand? Yeah, I understand. Let's move on. Children. Children. I want to ask the children a question. I'm going to read the verse, okay? Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. So here's my question. In how many things are you to obey your parents? Only Casey sees that, or everybody? <laughs> okay. Now, does all things include the things that you don't want to do as well? Okay. You guys understand that. Okay. Why are you to obey your parents in all things? Because it's well-pleasing to the Lord. So you're not, to, you're not to obey your parents just because it's well-pleasing to you, but because it's well-pleasing to the Lord. And who do you think is smarter, you or God? <laughs> right. So now that, you, now that you understand this, the next challenge for you is to actually do it and actually apply it when you go home today. Make sense? Understood? (laughs) Let's move on. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. And it's interesting that the Bible addresses the father primarily when it comes to raising children. So the father is really the one who's ultimately responsible. It doesn't mean the wife, the mother isn't responsible in in any way or not involved in that. But the father is the head of the home, is responsible. And, And experience has told us the wisdom of this command because it's children turn out to be the way that their father is. It, this, is, this is just experience has told us generally that people turn out to be the way that their father is. Children become like their fathers. Or their fathers, maybe better I could say this, the father has the biggest influence on the children, even if he's absent. That has a huge effect on children. And it says here, provoke not your children to wrath. And that agrees with what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, to provoke not your children to wrath or anger. As many times children will say, I hate my father. I hate my father. I'm angry at him. And usually the reason is, as we talked about last time we looked at Ephesians, an excessiveness in punishment or a 
or not enough involvement in the child's life. He was never there for me. Or he was always abusive or always never could do anything right to please my father. He was always punishing me. He was always disagreeable. He was always never approving, discouraging. And the Apostle Paul's addressing that by the inspiration of God. God is saying through him, Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. And essentially, it's a guideline then for us to imitate God the Father. Because God the Father is our perfect example of what a father is. God the Father is forgiving and merciful. God the Father is involved in our life. You can look to Him. You can trust in Him. You can rely on Him. He's just. He does discipline. But He disciplines in love. And He's there for you. He's there for His children. So take God the Father as your cue. He does discipline. But He's not discouraging. He disciplines for your good. And isn't it wonderful that if God isn't like a bad father and a bad father discourages the children, that God is encouraging to us. And when we look to God, we should always be encouraged because God is a father who encourages. God doesn't say, just give up. You're useless. He doesn't say that. A broken down spirit is the bane of youth. That's what the great German expositor Bengel said. A broken down spirit is the bane of youth. It shouldn't happen. Children shouldn't have a broken down spirit. But often it's related to the parents. The parents' fault. If you have a loving home, the child can go out to school and endure grief, but come home to the home and remain intact in his spirit. But if the home is a mess, you could even go out at school and have a wonderful time but the child's spirit will be discouraged and broken. And fathers, you're responsible for the the atmosphere in your home. If you don't have a father like that, and if your home was a mess, then go to God the Father and receive encouragement from Him. He can heal your spirit, and He can make you intact again. Bible says he's the father to the fatherless. Moving on. 22, slaves or servants and masters. Now, one of the striking things that people note about the New Testament is its stance on slaves. The Apostle Paul doesn't say, slaves, buy as many weapons as you can and overthrow your masters. (laughs) He doesn't say that, does he? In fact, he actually seems to be promoting the continuation of slavery because he says, submit to your masters. Don't rebel. Do what they say. In all things, he says. Again, notice all things. Notice totality is always in view whenever submission is talked about. If it's not total, then it's not real submission at all. If it's not all, it's not at all. The same principle applies to God's law. A lot of people like to think that they're obedient to the law of God. Oh yes, I keep the commandments, they say. Well, do you keep all the commandments? No, most of them. Well, then you don't keep any, according to James 2.10, because you don't really submit to God. It's either all or it's not at all with God. If you really examined your life, when it comes to keeping God's commandments, you'd find that you only keep God's commandments when, one, it's agreeable to you or you're apathetic. But when it comes down to it, when you don't want to obey, what do you do? You don't obey. And my friends, that is not obedience to God's law. That is not submission to God. And don't ever fool yourself to think that because you keep so-called most of the commandments, that you keep the commandments. Unless you keep all, you've you've kept none. You are a lawbreaker in God's sight and a rebel. And the gospel is this, that all of us have sinned and come short of God's standard. All of us don't submit to God's law. All of us do not submit to God's standard. 
And no one is right with God by keeping his commandments because no one is good. If you think you're a good person, the Bible says you're not. But the good news of the gospel is that even though you're a rebel, even though you don't submit, even though you don't love God and keep his commandments, God loves you. And God sent his son to die on the cross for your sins and all your law-breaking. He died on the cross to pay the penalty you deserve. And he offers to you the free gift of forgiveness if you just accept it by simple faith. And that's what a Christian is. A Christian isn't someone who's kept the law, but a Christian is somebody who has admitted they're a sinner and received grace from God through Jesus. But Paul here, when he talks about slaves, he says, submit. He wasn't out to reform Rome. I think Christians can spend a whole lot of time trying to reform society. And we say, you know, oh, our country is so this and that and the other, and we need to be more politically active. And there's nothing wrong with that, being politically active. But if it gets in the way of the Great Commission, the thing that we're really about, and often it does, often we get more concerned with reform, political reform, and trying to make non-Christians see the way we think, rather than just preaching the gospel. And change takes place. Eventually, slavery was abolished. And even through Christian influence. But because men's hearts need to change first. And the heart is changed through the gospel, not by political reform. Now today, slavery is almost gone, and it's not an issue not much of an issue anyway in our country. So I'm going to apply this to the employer and employee relationship because it is applicable to that. Your master according to the flesh would be your boss. It's in contrast to Christ, the master according to the spirit. How much are you supposed to obey? All things. When you go to work, When you go to Lowe's, here's what God says. Serve not with eye service as men pleasers. And you go to Chili's. What is eye service as men pleasers? That is, you really work hard when they're looking. When they're not looking, you really don't work hard. Because you're just, you're just, you're basically not serving them. You're serving yourself. And when they're coming, then to better yourself, you start working hard. <laughs> Except Paul doesn't just say serve them. He says submit to them as to the Lord. He says submit to them in the fear of God. You serve the Lord Christ. There's, this, there's a story I heard once, a true story. There was a Christian man that worked at IBM back in the day. And he had another Christian friend who worked at IBM too. But this Christian friend really was treated badly at IBM, actually. He never got a raise. And people didn't really like him much. And it, it, he, he let that get to him, so he really didn't do much work at IBM. He kind of just got through, but he was pretty depressed and wanted to find new work. He was just doing bare minimum stuff. And then all of a sudden, he came to work one day totally different. He was joyful. He was hardworking. He was getting things done. And the friend came over to the other friend and said, what's the difference or what, what happened? He's like, oh, I've resigned from IBM. He goes, what do you mean you resigned from IBM? And he's like, yeah, I'm not serving IBM anymore. I'm serving the Lord. I'm serving the Lord Christ. He probably read Colossians chapter 3. Because this has nothing to do with whether you have a good job or a bad job. You might say, well, this job stinks anyway, so I'm just going to do the bare minimum until I get a good job, then I'll work hard. It has nothing to do with that. And as Christians, we're being watched as well. It's a witness in the work communities. Fearing God, verse 22 with singleness of heart, fearing God, meaning you have one 
objective in your heart. You're serving with one simple passion, and that is you're serving Christ. And fearing God means you're taking sin seriously, you're taking the gospel seriously. You're living in light of the gospel, essentially, is what fearing God means. You're seeing what sin is, what God's design in, what God's design is for you, and that even though you failed, Christ died for you. And so to walk suitably according to the gospel is out of loving response to what God has done. I'm going to seek to, to please Him in my life. Not because I have to, but because I want to because of what He's done for me. You're fearing God. You're taking God seriously. And just skip down to verse 1 of chapter 4. Masters, he says, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that you have a master in heaven. So the right thing to do as, a, as an employer, as a master, is to be fair and just, not in the eyes of the world, but what is just in the eyes of God, to your employees. I don't believe that this is talking about pastors at all. No. 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 Job. Last thing we'll look at this morning before we close is verse 23 and 24, which, or excuse me, 24 and 25, the last two verses. And I'd like to just say that these, the, the idea, the concept here is a greatly disputed concept even amongst Christians in the church. Christians take very different views on these two verses. And if you're wondering about what, the issue is uh, this idea of reward. Okay, this idea of reward. It says here, Knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Then this verse but he that does wrong shall receive for the wrong which he has done, and there is no respecter of persons. So some Christians will say that as Christians, we're saved by grace, not of works, but that doesn't mean that there isn't rewards that we'll receive based upon what we do or don't do in eternity. And that's variously explained, and they use passages like this, or 1 Corinthians chapter 3, which basically says, that there's the foundation that is Christ, but everyone builds on it. And then at the judgment day, it'll, God's fire will test every man's work for what it is, and what remains will stand, and what isn't is lost. They'll use verses like that. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Or Romans chapter 14. And then the other side of the argument... Christians will say, no, I don't like that view because that sounds like it has to do with works and that sounds like there's a difference between us and heaven. I think everyone's the same. I think that you know, once we believe in Christ, we're righteous and our eternity will be exactly the same, everybody's. And they point to the parable of the vineyard, the workers where one worked for a long time, another worked for a shorter time, another worked for an even shorter time, but they all got paid the same. So here's uh, my view, and I'm just, I'm not going to be dogmatic about this, okay? You can disagree with me, and I'm still learning. I think that the everyone is the same view is weak. I think that the everyone is the same view doesn't consider all the relevant texts in Scripture when it talks about people's works being burned up and rewards, because there's some clear verses. And what I've read of the everyone is the same view. They, they don't really address those verses. They just kind of keep pointing to the parable of the vineyard. Or they explain them away somehow. But they are right. The everyone is the same view is absolutely right when they say that all of our righteousness is the exact same. No one is more righteous than another. And everything that comes with that righteousness is the same as well. So because you're righteous, you have eternal life. You have every spiritual blessing in Christ. There's no condemnation for you. You're going to be glorified together with Christ. This is what Paul says in chapter 3. He says, If you're risen with Christ, set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. For you are dead, and your life is here with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, corporate everyone, 
Then you also shall appear with him in glory. So everyone, because we're righteous, we have all the same things that come from that righteousness. Hope, life, glorification, justification, and everything that comes with that. It's all the same. But I believe, I'm seeing in Scripture, that what we do as Christians, now that we are righteous by faith and have eternal life, what we do as Christians doesn't get forgotten by God or lost. This is what I'm trying to say. That even though we're totally forgiven and righteous perfectly by faith, the things that we do, the good works that we do, they don't get forgotten by God as insignificant. And you'll remember in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul says, uh, you're saved by grace, not by works, not of works lest any man should boast. But then he says, we're created in Christ Jesus and we're all here together as Christians to do good works, he says, that he has prepared from before the foundation of the world, right? So now we see that we're saved to do good works. And God's prepared these works for every single one of us to do from before the foundation of the world. He's prepared us to do it. So whatever we do is even by his grace. Whatever we do has been determined by God. He's given it unto us to do these things. Before we are Christian, could we do any good works? No. No. We couldn't do any good works. But when you are a Christian, can you do good works? Yes. Yeah. And do they have any significance whatsoever in eternity, do you think? Yes. Yeah, I believe they do. And that doesn't take away from the fact that we're saved by grace, not by works. But it's a beautiful thing because now that I am saved, I can do good things that God will not forget. People don't like this idea, though, because they think, well, doesn't that mean I'm going to be motivated to do things to get rewards? And, well, there is a danger, certainly. I think certainly someone could be motivated to do good works to get rewards. But I believe if you were to be motivated to do a good work to get that, then it would cease to be a good work. See? Because a good work is when you do something when you're simply considering the other. For example, the Nobel Peace Prize. Is it wrong that we give out a prize for someone who does a good thing in this world? I don't believe it is. But hopefully the person that won the prize wasn't doing it to get the prize. Right? Hopefully they weren't, I'm going to go help these people or come up with this thing just so I can get the Nobel Peace Prize. But if they did that, then they probably wouldn't get the prize. And God is a perfect uh, judge. Right. Just let Christ be your guide through the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. It's all of grace. I believe when we when we go to heaven and when God remembers our good deeds that we did in Christ that aren't forgotten, it will be seen that it's all of grace. He prepared them from before the foundation of the world. No one's going to be envious or upset. It's kind of like one body in many parts, right? God, even though we're all saved the same, we're all very different in the body of Christ. But no one's upset because when we see God's the one who, by his grace, has allotted the whole thing. And really, in heaven, we're one body. So even all our good deeds belong to every one of us, don't they? If Ailey does good deeds in heaven and he gets recompense for that, God remembers the good deeds that he did, we all rejoice with him because, one, Ailey was saved by pure grace, and those deeds were prepared by God before the foundation of the world, and he's part of me, and I'm part of him. We're in the body. I can just rejoice with him over what happened, right? We can just rejoice together. And then you might say, well, I think I'm probably going to have a real small part. But what about the widow's might? you know? She only gave a little bit, but that was because that's all God had given her. But it was more than anyone else had even given. So the amazing thing is this, brothers and sisters, that at the judgment seat of Christ... There will be no condemnation for us because all of our bad deeds will not be brought before us at the judgment seat. We're completely righteous. And yet the amazing thing is is that the good things that we did in Christ will be there and God will say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. 
On the flip side, a sinner, when he stands before the judgment seat, though he did many good things, they'll all not be there. Because all his good deeds are disqualified, according to Titus, according to James, according to Jesus, according to God. The sinner will have no good deeds at the judgment day, but all his bad will remain. And the last thing I'll say is this. I think that the reward that we get for these deeds is of lesser is a lesser part in the grand scheme of things. It'll be kind of like this. Imagine you're on death row and all of a sudden you get released the day of your death, the day of your appointed death. Okay? You're you don't want to die. You're going to go to the and then suddenly you're released. It's like, "Wow, I got my life back." You know, and you're so excited. And then all of a sudden Somebody runs up and says, and you got a tax return too. <laughs> you know? Like, it's like, that's just a bonus, but I'm glad I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm glad I'm free. That you're alive, right? You'll be so overwhelmed by the fact that as a sinner, you're saved by grace. That when, you're, when you also receive these things for the good deeds you do, it'll be like, I'm so over, I can't even, this is just bonus, this is just abundance, I just can't even believe this. You see, it's, it's going to be just like a tax return at the day that you've been set free, okay? Yeah. Right, right. Yes, yes. So it's just a bonus on top of the already amazing gift. So Paul's encouraging slaves who have nothing in this world. He's saying, look, you know, you serve the Lord Christ and he has good wages. But he's also encouraging us. God does take notice of what we do as Christians and he won't forget the things that we do. So be encouraged. Be encouraged to serve him. So let's go into the new year. Eager for good works. Eager for our relationships our core relationships, family, and employ and our careers as well. Let's be eager to walk suitably according to the gospel which has saved us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your wisdom when it comes to human relationships and these very important ones. And I pray for us here, Lord, that we wouldn't, we wouldn't fail here in the most important relationships. But God, that we would allow our relationship with you and the gospel of Jesus and his grace to, to affect and change our relationships. God, I pray that, that we would truly see the wisdom and the love that you have in giving us these commands and that we would obey them with the desire to please you, not because we have to, but because we want to. Please change us. Make this new year different. And we thank you, Father, for the amazing gift of your grace that you lavish upon us in Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his mighty name. Amen.